enjoyed my show today. We'll see you again soon. We were good, we were gold, kind of dream that can't be sold. We were right, till we weren't, built a home and watched it burn. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, so happy to have Paul Tran here in the studio. Paul, welcome to WCBN. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's so good to see you, and thanks for picking the songs for today's program. Of course. Um, this first one that we started out with, that was, yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. What, Thank you. And this was you were saying these were the last these were the last five songs you listened to when I asked you for five songs. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. And any um I feel like it's meant to be with the fade out coming with I can go dancing uh like by mm -hmm. myself. That mm -hmm. do you feel like that too? I feel like that's gonna be a good I don't know, like a, Absolutely. a lens into <laughs> the chorus is um I can buy myself flowers. And I think, what a beautiful gesture that you can give yourself beauty. You can give yourself what you need. And also the book is all the flowers kneeling. So it just felt complimentary in that way. Just right. Yes. And I think beauty is something that that surfaces throughout all the flowers kneeling, this idea of beauty, mm -hmm. of war. Yes. Um, uh, well, but without, without um, wasting another moment, I'll read your bio, um, and then, then let's talk, Paul, because yes. it's so good to have you here. Paul Tran is the author of the debut poetry collection, All the Flowers Kneeling, published by Penguin. Their work appears in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Best American Poetry, and elsewhere. They earned their BA in history from Brown University and MFA in poetry from Washington University in St. Louis winner of the Discovery Boston Review Poetry Prize, as well as fellowships from the Poetry Foundation, Stanford University, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Paul is an assistant professor of English and Asian American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. All the flowers kneeling, Paul. Yes. Let's, let's talk about your beautiful book here and, and how how it came to be like what um i feel like in reading the acknowledgments mm. there has been many um there's been time and there's been many different places and people that have been part of the fabric of the time in making all the flowers kneeling yes. is this is this right or or would i mean absolutely um this book began 10 years ago when I was a junior in college. 
was raped in my dorm room and no one that I came to for support believed me. I was given two pamphlets from the office of the dean, one for psychological services and one for time management and told that if I didn't finish my coursework by the end of the term, I would lose my scholarships. And, and this is when you went for help, when you said, this has happened to me. Oh, yes. And you were asking for folks to listen to you, yes. not to be... To believe think, me. To believe you, exactly. And I think I started writing poems. Well, one in part because I was part of the spoken word club that met on Thursdays. And... Um, that was the only space I felt safe. But also on a more practical level, recording in the poems what happened, the time mm. of day, um, when the door opened, when the person entered, what happened next, made it so that I wouldn't forget the little evidence I had and made it so that at least to me, it felt real and it felt worthy of being talked about and if no one else was going to take me seriously, I had to take me seriously. But yeah, I wasn't a um, skilled poet then. All I knew about poetry for a long time came from YouTube.com. Um, and so you're right, many people, many places were involved in making this book possible. From friends who let me, you know, sleep on their couch, to mentors who taught me how to spell the word villanelle, to um, teachers who admitted me into their graduate programs so that for the first time I could read poets who would become my favorite authors and mm -hmm. thinkers, um, figures in history who had gone through what I'd gone through. And Without them, without their support and their belief, mm -hmm. this book wouldn't have happened. And the person that emerged from making this book, I think more importantly, wouldn't have happened either. And now you have, you have this book, All the Flowers Kneeling, and you also, as we said in the bio mm -hmm. you are now a professor yes you are now a teacher of in at an undergrad institution mm -hmm. um how do you how do you see that becoming and you've been teaching before like mm -hmm. it's enduring part of this journey i think in the 10 years you've taught at different places right mm -hmm. paul um and so how do you feel like for you what is it like in this um this relationship with I don't know the poets who what you're now transmitting mm. to them and and in a way guiding or or challenging or telling them you know how to spell villanelle yes. right yeah. and that's an important and a beautiful question T and I think my answer is in three parts the first is that when I went to college, I was the first in my family 
to learn to read, write, think, dream in English. I was the first in my family to graduate high school, the first to attend college. And I know that so many of my students come from a similar story. They arrive on campus with not only their dreams, but the dreams of their families, mm -hmm. their neighborhoods, their ancestors, the home countries, that they might have fled to the US with the notion that life might be better here. And so I aim, when I stand in that classroom, to support not only them, but all of the countless people that they carry on their shoulders, all of the countless responsibilities imagined or eternalized that they are charged with. And most importantly, I, I go back to that moment when I was a junior and I needed all the support in the world because this thing that just occurred would I mean, it devastated me. It annihilated every goal I had for myself. It annihilated even my sense of self. And so when I'm in that classroom as a queer and trans professor of color, one of the only on campus and one of the few in the country, I aim to believe my students what they come into that space with and to help them from that position of belief. And secondly, my job, I think, as a creative writing professor, as a professor of poetry, is to help them locate not only the utility of poetry within higher education, but also in their life. Sure, a lot of these um, young minds will not grow up to be poets. They will be engineers, they will be doctors, they will be lawyers, they will be whatever it is that they choose to be. But I hope that they can see how what we learn about, let's say, the properties of phonic echo, or the properties of syntax, or the property of specificity and clarity in language can be used in everyday life. And so, for example, when we read um, Soma Sharif's poem, Social Skills Training, and the speaker says, if ever pulled over by an officer, it is better to say, how can I help you? than to say, is there a problem? Mm -hmm. Because the latter presumes issue, presumes concern or trouble. They can use that when, if ever, God forbid, they're put in that situation. Or, for example, when they know that, let's say, rhyme, and particularly end rhyme, not alliteration, but end rhyme, creates a sense of closure that if ever in a job interview, if ever on a date, and they wanted to make themselves um, pronounced, ooh, you just throw a little <laughs> and rhyme in there. Yeah. And then suddenly, they are no longer everyday um, practitioners of language, mm -hmm. right? People who just use it, maybe take it for granted. But they become skilled persuasive artists of language mm -hmm. and they can use it to do whatever it is they choose to do and I think that's my third point is that because language governs us how can they use this thing to liberate themselves into a site where they can make their own choices for their own purposes on their own terms. Mm -hmm.
And that feels like that is throughout all the flowers kneeling. Yes. I think it's, you know. It, this message, really. Yes. Um, and I think, Paul, the reason why I'm saying that, too, is like thinking through moments and across the poems, but also in, I think at the end of your your notes section, hmm. um, I believe a knowledge of resistance and liberation can be acquired in poetry through the lyric method. Mm-hmm. Because that seems to de- directly connect to the artist like of, of language yes. and giving empowering students to see what language can be and what it can mean to them and also what they can communicate with yes. it. Yes. But it was so interesting to me that you put that sentence there at the I don't know if you probably like I wrote those notes a, a few oh, <laughs> a no, while ago. No. But, you can um, everything I did for this book, down to how the cover was put together, down to the um, decision for French flaps or deckled edges, all of that was intentional. Very deliberate. Yes. Yes. Which, you know, inside the word deliberate is the word liberate. liberate. Yes. 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 Yeah. So, okay. So can you tell, I know it's yes. a strange place to start is the notes of a book of poems, right? Because, but why not start at the end? <laughs> right. Well, then let's go to the acknowledgments now. Um, but that's where we were just at. The that's acknowledgments. Right. <laughs> that's true. So we are doing it let's, yes. in reverse. This is great. Okay. But so, um, the notes it's everything is a, attached to different different parts of the the poems mm-hmm. as you as as we're going through um chronologically in the order and then um this note it seems like it's it's visually attached to copernicus mm-hmm. but i felt like it just was so it was felt like a manifesto to me yes yes i mean for me thinking about how a book is put together. Um, The note section of a poetry collection oftentimes is utilized to give credit when we have um, sampled parts of another poem or if there are uh, pieces of information that a reader might need to make sense of a work that might, say, be ekphrastic, and so referencing an art piece, or um, or sometimes a dedication. Maybe the poem is written for someone. But in looking at the notes section from my mentor's book, Mary Jo Bang, and her teacher, Lucy Brock Broido, I saw it as an opportunity to show a reader who made this book. Mm. What are the different elements of their life, the books they've read, the movies they've watched, the artists that they've listened to, the things they learned in school that resonated with them throughout the years. What composes a human subjectivity that is then translated into art? Um, it's, It's my way of showing that, oh, I have been influenced by things as specific as um, the scientific method, to uh, Buddhist folklore, to um, 
oh no, the legend of Scheherazade to a specific moment um, in a Randall Jarrell poem. Like all of these people, all of these things, all of these ideas throughout time live in me and were translated into these poems. And so the notes is is a um it's almost like a, a autobiography, you know, like in a way. But for that specific moment, I was thinking about how so much of Western civilization is based on this idea of exceptionalism that goes back to the Enlightenment era, where the West attempted to distinguish itself by being objective, original thinkers, and that their objectivity and that their um, thought rose from having invented for themselves the scientific method. And as poets, or as artists, and just, I think, generally as human beings, we know that objectivity is asymptotic. We reach for it, but it's never actually achieved. Everything is subjective. Everything is bias. Everything is perspective and agenda and a confirmation of that. And so as a poet specifically, how I get to what could be truth is through writing the lyric poem and using lyric strategies such as sound, image, even the poetic line to trick my consciousness into entering that unknown shadowy place where the ego is annihilated, where received ideas and preconceived beliefs are cast aside so that I might, if ever, objectively look at something. And that's what I think the lyric method is. Using art, in this case poetry, to trick oneself into finally seeing oneself. And if one could practice seeing oneself, then one can see oneself in relation to others, in relation to place, and in relation to the world, and ask ourselves, do we like who we see? Do we like the choices we make? Do we like the person that we've become? And it's okay that we don't, because if we don't, we can change. Yes. We can do something different, live differently. But it only happens by tricking the self to step aside. And that doesn't necessarily happen by the scientific method, but it has certainly happened for me through the lyric. Yes. I mean, that feels like a, a manifesto for, like when people say, oh, poetry, you know, like the place of it. And I feel like the things that you're calling upon there, Paul, are like these moments in time where if if we could be, it could, if you can create, be brave enough to create that space mm -hmm. of, or that to trick yourself into that space, um, to think more and to th think more on our own yes. instead of like the received knowledge yes. or so that sometimes or the conditioned yes. expectations yes. or that surround everyone. And with the constant busy busyness, the pushing along into the next, into the next, yes. it gives us sometimes an excuse yes. not to look or oh, to create an so many experience. people, institutions and systems benefit 
from our yes. not looking at ourselves. And they benefit from us thinking that we are. And I mean, you're right. So much of poetry has been ornamental. And when think about the poetry that has survived, oh, it survived because it was in service to the state. Poetry created in courts, poetry created under certain regimes. Those poems survived time huh. because they reified the commonplace status quo of the times. Oh, so almost like in working like religions do. And, yes. I mean, they were... Um, hmm, yeah. It serves those systems um, to co-opt any tools that might be in resistance to it. And so for me, that idea of using the lyric poem as a way to really self-reflect, as a way of really enabling us to make difficult choices by changing how we use language, this thing that enables us not only to connect with others, but to announce what we want, to say what we need. Mm -hmm. um, what, yeah. what we believe. To say what we believe. That once that changes, we can change. And then we can affect change in the world around us. Do you think that you're... you're because maybe we need to go earlier, because I feel like I was going to say your choice to study history um, as an undergrad is something that also is informing this in a way, these perspectives. And was it something about your family story and understanding that as history, hmm. lived history? Yes that, and no. no. I think... Okay. Um, I was a history major in undergrad in large part because that was the only major I ended up being able to graduate in. And actually, a day before graduation, I had not enough credits to graduate anywhere. But I had the incredible luck of having a wonderful, generous mentor who called and said, um, you failed out of ethnic studies, you failed out of everything else, but you are one credit short in history and you need a global requirement. And I saw that several years ago you took a global performance studies class. And can you just tell me a little bit of what you did there? And I was like, I, you know, I remember saran wrap, I remember eating a donut, and I remember saying that was queer performance. And I definitely got a grade. Um, and, she, you know, they made it work. And so... I um, love that you also didn't try to say it in a way that was going to inflate it. You know, like how some no. people will write a resume. They'll be like, I was doing no. this. And you just said the truth of it. But I was. Um, but, but but being a history major taught me how to think. Hmm. And. I remember one of the assignments, for example, was to do a close reading of a poem and we were assigned Rudyard Kipling's The White Man's Burden where he talked about how the United States should go into um, what would become the American-Philippine War and send its soldiers abroad um, to help civilize what he called the half-devil, half-child-like people. And just that trope 
of casting the other, casting people of color as half devil, half child. That has persisted on in popular imagination and culture forever. And so even though it wasn't, let's say, um, studying you know, stanzas or studying um, figuration or uh, rhetorical figures in poems, being a history major made me think about the utility of poetry in everyday life and in society as a way of shaping thought because it shapes imagination and it shapes language. Um, but I don't know, towards your question more specifically, when I was younger, most of the things I did, I did because I thought that the people I did them for would return to me their love, security, and protection. And um, sometimes I think if I had the opportunity to be an undergraduate student again, I would pursue something else, something of my own choosing. I mean, when I think about you know living my life again, so many different choices mm-hmm. I would make. But but for for now, so much ahead, yeah. still, Paul. Yeah. Um, would you would you mind reading a poem? Oh, of course. From, that I don't know if it's one that you feel connects to what we were just sort of near. Oh yes. Um, but if what. Or whichever one. See, I told you I was going to find a way to be like, would you read one? <laughs> yes. Resist, resist. No, no, no. I'm so happy to. So happy to. Um, lipstick Elegy. I climb down to the beach facing the Pacific Ocean while torrents of rain shear the sand. On the other side, My grandmother sleeps soundlessly in her bed, her alyai of the whitest silk. My mother knew her mother died long before the telephone rang, like bells announcing the last American helicopter leaving Saigon. Arrow shot back to its bow, long distant missile. She'd leap into the sky to fly home if she could. She works overtime instead. Curls her hair with hat rollers, roses her cheeks like Gong Li in Rays the Red Lantern, and I, I am her understudy, hiding in the doorway between her grief and mine. I apply her foundation to my face. I conceal the parts of me she conceals, puckering my lips as if to kiss a man that loves me the way I want to be loved. I speak their bewitching names out loud. Twisted Rose, Fuchsia in Paris, Irreverence. I choose the lipstick she'd least approve. My mouth, a pomegranate, split open a grenade with a loose pin. In the kitchen, I wrap a white sheet around my waist and dance for hours, mesmerized by my reflection in a charred skillet. I laughed her laugh. 
the way my grandmother used to laugh when she was alive, when she taught me how to pray from the Judai bee when I braided her hair in the unbearable heat, my tiny fingers weaving each silver strand into a fishtail, French twist, each knot, another child she never got to name buried in the soil of her where she locked the image of her sons and daughters locked away. I'm so sorry. Mother of my mother, Immortal bodhisattva with a thousand hands, chewing a fist, a beetle root, your teeth black as dawn. No child in our family stays a child their mother can love. Thank you, Paul. Of course. So in that one poem, you create an experience of many different powerful emotions shifting. Mm. And it's present in the, the words on the page, mm -hmm. but also especially that we're lucky enough to hear you read it. And I'm lucky to read it too. Yes. The poem in the world. Mm -hmm. So thinking about what you said earlier, yes. it feels like these things are somehow now made more real. Mm -hmm. I mean, that idea, realness, governs my practice. Because from the conversation we started with, this book, these poems began because no one believed me. And when I would tell people what happened or when I would tell people that, oh, you know, this happened to me as a child at the hand of my father, or when I tell people that, oh, my mother experienced this as a refugee during the American war in Vietnam, or that the other women in my family experienced this during the French Indochina war, they would say, oh my God, that's unbelievable. And I would say, the very fact that you can't believe it is why it happens and why people get away with it. And so in the work, mm -hmm. it has to be real because then people cannot deny that such violences do occur and they occur to people who look like me. And yet the word rape is never used in this book. The word trauma is never used in this book because it's not a book about any of those things. It's a book about survival, which is actually the thing that needs to be believed as well. So, by, uh, yes, by, by, uh, you, by uh, first the survivor yes, yeah. and by everyone else. Because once, you know, once they get past the hill of knowing that such violence has happened, the easiest label to put on a person is, oh, they are a victim of blank. And actually, sure, That's that is, you know, accurate to some degree. But we're also survivors who get up every day, put our clothes on, brush our teeth, and go to work. And, you know, go to the grocery store, come home, cook for the people we love, and do the same thing again day after day. And in between all those things, we have dreams, goals, people we love well and not well, 
reasons to take care of ourselves and reasons why we deflect from it whole lives. And that's still part of the surviving. Um, and so that intricate enterprise of persistence and enduring, that is also what I want to make real in these poems. Because, and also, just throughout history, someone like me has never been real. Have been told we don't have a soul, or, you know, the have, it's all the tropes put on you. And so to be real in this book, to be real in these poems, so undeniably so. And like you said, to be first real to my own self. Oh, maybe then I will value and respect and demand more for myself. And I will get it. Today on Living Writers, Paul Tran. Their book, their debut collection, All the Flowers Kneeling, out with Penguin Poets. I'm T. Hetzel. We're going to take a short break. You've got Living Writers. We've got Jason behind the glass. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I am so glad you did because today Paul Tran is here in the studio. Their book, All the Flowers Kneeling, out with Penguin Press. Um, we, with this, yeah, I, we, we could just, I feel like I could keep talking to you, Paul. <laughs> so <laughs> but I know, much, likewise. I know, I know we have the, the sports uh, uh, um, program is coming on next, though. So um, trying to think about uh, how much I can um, gently squeeze out of our time together. Please, please, please. <laughs> um, and I was thinking how you said everything in all the flowers kneeling um, is this deliberate choice yes. with the li- word liberate and caught within that well breaking out of it um and i think through your table of contents um you also were saying to make a book to build a book this feels like very visual like planning when we look at your table of contents Mm -hmm. also and some of the repetitions that we have like uh orchard of knowing as our way in Mm -hmm. to the book Orchard of Unknowing is our our, our final poem yes. in the book. Um, uh, things like scientific method, um, using using um, ekphrastic mm-hmm. poems. Uh, I think is it three times one two yes three yes, um, and the Santa Ana I think returns. Does it or am I just making that up right now? Maybe the wind is in another poem yes. too. Yes. Um, but and definitely the one thousand and one nights. Mm-hmm. Shahrazad, yes. Could you could you say a little bit about this this structuring? Mm-hmm. Because when the poems, when you were making the poems, it's not like this was necessarily how they were coming to you. But, and strangely, yes, it was. <gasps> oh, great! Because. Um, I mean, one trait that I try to divest from, but I think maybe at this point in life, it's just way too late. It's just part of who I am, is that I have to see the bigger picture in order to understand the individual components and sometimes to compel myself um, to do the individual components. I mean, it really originates from being a child and thinking like, oh, you know, I have to get my family out of poverty. I have to like make it out of my name, like all these things. And so my life has always been um, a life of the future. It's how I endure the present. It's how I make sense of the past is if there's a bigger picture to live for. And putting the book together was no different. I think I came up with the table of contents before I came up with most of the poems, in this, in the sense that because I write autobiographically, I, I knew sort of where my trajectory would end up in the present moment, where, wherever I am right now, and that it would cover the last you know, decade of life. And I thought about different um, structures. The hero's journey, um, for example, being one But for a collection of poems, I found that while some argue or or some um, arrange their work into three sections, most people, when I ask them why they do it, just say, oh, because most they found that that's how most books are done. And again, the desire to be deliberate, to make choices for a reason. And so in this book, there are four sections. And the four sections themselves 
enact the Greek rhetorical device of chiasmus, which, when it appears in literature, signals psychological and emotional entrapment. It's a um, double cage that the speaker has difficulty liberating themselves from, and it usually appears in um, arrangements like um, we will win the war, the war we will win. So win, war, war, win. Um, the outer cage of win, the inner cage of war. And here, we start in the immediate aftermath of the incident that occurred. We go back in time. We reflect and stay in the past, and then we re-enter the present with new knowledge and new information. Um, and oh, I thought that was that idea that, like, this isn't going to be a story with victory at the end. This isn't going to be a story with triumph at the end. Because it's more real for me to say that I'm still a human being who repeats past mistakes. But isn't that still a victory? Oh, yes. It's to its be own a victory. human being. To oh, be yes. and to feel that I to, am. To even feel human I, again. I am. Yes. yes. And so... While I thought others might want an easy story from me, um, that something happened and I got over it, what I needed to represent was, no, this is complicated, this remains complex, and I'm doing the best that I can. Um, you show this yeah. through the book, through the poems, and now this is um, because the incident um, is surfaces throughout mm -hmm. in different poems. It's not as if there are, I don't believe maybe I, you'll have to tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm, please correct me, because I feel like there's different moments when some of the same language resurfaces oh, yes. in a, in another poem, yes. but it's, it's not. It's changed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this this is deliberate. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, but but I thought it was so interesting as I was reading the book to have that experience because often those poems are are signaled in a sort of way where this is going to be the thread. Mm -hmm. But I felt like it it could the thread could be anywhere, which is more real to the experience yes. I imagine of surviving yes. and the day to day. Yes. I mean, part of the nature of trauma is repetition and recurrence. And so why should the language not recur? Why should motifs and images um, not come back? But I think each time they come back, there's something different. And in large part because in one of her lectures, Toni Morrison says that she refuses the idea of having that triumphant ending mm -hmm. where her characters are. Um, liberated from their cells and circumstance. But what she chooses instead, under the virtue of goodness, is that all of her characters acquire knowledge and that that knowledge transforms them. And so even when ideas recur in my work and language recurs in my work, they are changed because the speaker is changed.
let's talk. Shall we talk about one of the art yes, poems? Yes, of course. Um, a painting that folks could see at the DIA if they so choose. How did you? Did you? Were you at the Detroit Institute of Art? Oh, Paul? I wish. Or were I you? Wish. How did, so, how did you choose the the poem the the um, the paintings that you um, you engage Ooh. with for this? Um, well, all of these paintings I saw as an 11th grader in a bungalow behind my school in an AP art history class with Mr. Smith. Oh, shout out was, to Mr. Smith. Yes, like the patron <laughs> saint of all of the um, nerds and outcasts. And like... Uh, Talk about a hero. Oh, super. Like, yeah. who, who just enabled us to um, be who we were. And for some reason, these paintings stayed with me. And so why not put them in a book? Why not write about them? The first is The Nightmare by Henry Fusili, um, which I later would learn, you know, was part of the era of psychoanalysis. And then the second is Landscape with the Fall of Icarus by Peter Bruegel, who many poets have written about this. Um, W.H. Auden being one of them. And I felt like, first of all, in the general of a, a ephrastic poetry there needs there's a sense of hubris implied when one writes an ekphrastic poem because it means that what the art itself already attempts to say is not enough and therefore we are adding our perspective to it well, and could when it be I, a tribute could it be a i mean or as a even even a tribute or um, like a, a wanting to be part of or a wanting to be near? oh in conversation yeah in conversation yeah, but even the want <laughs> But I think for the case of the um, second painting in particular, yeah. at least in my, in, at least I'll own it for myself. There were things in the previous poems written about that painting that I thought were just insufficient, um, and that with my experience or my perspective, I could rectify or add something, which is. You know, that's a level of arrogance, <laughs> and I will own it. But for, but again, to end then the ekphrastic series with a painting by Artemisia Gentileschi, who was one of the first women of her era to testify in public court against her rapist. Yes. That was the movement. And to write about a painting in which two women collaborated to bring justice against an aggressor. And that justice happening to being his beheading, I thought was glorious. Because if I could turn back time, that's what I imagine justice would have looked like. Um, so happily read it. Uh, the poem is called, after the painting by Artemisia Gentileschi, Judith Slaying Holofernes. I know better than to leave the house without my good dress, my good knife like a crucifix 
between my stone breasts. Oh, mother would have me whipped, would have me kneeling on rice until I shrilled so loud I rang the church bells. Didn't I tell you? She would remind me that elegance is our revenge, that there are neither victims nor victors, but the one we envy in the end. I am that one. I'm dogged. I'm so damned. Not even death wanted me. He sent me back after you'd sacked my body the way your army sacked my village stacked our headless idols in the river where our children impaled themselves on rocks. I exit night. <laughs> I enter your tent, gilded in a bolt of stubborn sunlight. My sleeves are already rolled up, and I know what they'll say. For showing this much skin, this irreverence for what is seen when I ask to be seen. Look at me. My thigh lifts from your thigh. My mouth spits poison into your mouth. You, oh, you nasty beauty. I'm no beast. Still my blade sliding clean through your thick neck while my maid keeps your blood off me and my good dress will be a song the parish sings for centuries. Tell Mary. Tell Eve. Tell Salome and David about me watch all their faces like all of yours turn green thank you Paul so happy to do it I feel like the end of that poem is also such a surprise to me in a way because they're there's calling out the his, these historical figures as um I think in, in almost in different ways. Um, but the turning green part with death. Death, envy. Um, envy was what I thought when I read it to myself, I think. Mm -hmm. But it was so, yeah. It's, it's transformative hearing you read these poems. Do they ever do audiobooks for poems? Because poems should be in the world like that. They do. There's an audiobook. There isn't. Did you? So obviously, you did the audiobook. Yes. <laughs> Could you imagine if you were like, who do you want to do your audiobook? Oh, I would love. Poems? Oh, my God. Oh, wait. But then you could do a second one where other people that you pick read certain poems. Oh, yes. Or they pick the poems they loved. Or That'd be amazing. That, that would be amazing. That would be, that would be a great celebration. So to so to engage with this this story and this art, it feels it seems so important mm -hmm. to have this strong woman as as a guide to what could be, mm -hmm. because so often we're conditioned otherwise. Yes. Um, and the collection is filled with incredible women who have survived similar circumstance. 
including my mother, including Scheherazade herself, without whom we wouldn't have devices such as the frame story or the cliffhanger. And so much of modern day storytelling go back to this one femme figure from Central and South Asian legend who survived for a thousand one nights her eminent death by doing what? By telling stories. Um, stories that then taught another human being to have mercy and to love. Um, yeah. And how, and how, I mean, how do we, how do you see all the flowers kneeling being part of that tradition? It's, um, well, you know, this is not unrelated to your question about the book structure. Um, the structure itself emulates the narrative structure of A Thousand and One Nights as well, um, to open and close with the poem of the same title is the frame story. And then I see all the poems inside it as the individual stories that I told over the course of, you know, 10 years in order to survive into this moment. So A Thousand and One Nights again and again and again. Yeah. Um, but I feel a more honest answer to your question is before this book existed as I was growing up I could not find for myself on the shelf of any library in this country a story of survival by another queer and trans Vietnamese American. And if they were out there, they were in places where I could not reach. And so where does this foot, where does this book fit in to this tradition of showing the human potential, the force and power of the human will and spirit and uncrushable heart? It's that I hope now on shelves, young people, people like me, people who have endured for years and years and years in their separate silences, can find themselves represented in literature and in history, and that others who encounter it will know what it was like for one human life to decide to continue living and reclaiming their humanity against an obstacle that would have otherwise crushed them. And what that decision requires, the everyday, ordinary things to complete what would be an extraordinary task, living and being who you might be able to live with. And so um, I don't believe that my experience will represent accurately the experiences of others, but that this book might also be joined on the shelves with more and more and more books dedicated to the project 
of survival and showing the many ways that survival can look like how we are good survivors some days, bad survivors other days, okay survivors most days, you know, like that that we're just doing the best. The human yes, thing. Yes, the human thing. <laughs> but that they will be joined together on the shelves of libraries, With bookstores. More voice. Yes. Yeah. That's what I hope. Let this stay. This is... I'm yeah. so glad. <laughs> I feel like, Paul, I was going to say, I'm so glad you said that because I, when I asked you that, I was like, Paul, I have an answer. <laughs> and well, you said it more beautifully no, I just, than I could. <laughs> well, you have to step in. <laughs> well, no, that's what I mean. You've done it. That's the thing. That's, yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I, do, I do see how then this becomes like a story that um, illuminates and teaches just like the 1001 nights yes. like it is this is part of this yeah and it reaches out yes and it's um I mean I feel some write poems to comfort some write poems to express I write poems to investigate and discover and to shape thought itself. And I hope that in doing so, others will find that they can look at their life and discover knowledge from their life and that lives they may not have otherwise felt were special have been so special and spectacular all along. Shall we go out on a poem? Yes. Yeah. Ooh, I have one. You've been yes. I I just so you know, I had one, but I want it was Ooh, well, what's yours? What's well, yours? Well my mine was um the last part of a much longer poem. Oh so, Is it Is it? What we're thinking of? Wait. It was fourteen. Uh-huh. Was it or no, it was different. Read yours, Paul. This is because this is this is your hour in this moment. Ooh. I like that one. I'll do that one. No, do what you do the one you're. <laughs> It'll be well, this will be the first living writers where we go off the air with just us like, Hello. what's next? What's next? <laughs> oh, no, I'll do that one for the for, for time. It's um it's part of a long poem called Shahrazad. Could okay. Paul, yes. is there a way to also, um, could you, would it be awful to move forward into the poem, Take It, the King, I Return to? Because this part is such a way of seeing how you're um, playing and challenging the language. Mm -hmm. in, in, um, but I think, is, is Jason going to call it the time? Is it no more time, Jason says? No more time at all. Okay, then I know, Paul, here we go. Mm -hmm. We've got a, the last, the very Just last, the last poem. Part. Perfect. The, or this, or this. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. 14. Always I'm told there's more to know, to feel, to do, today, before dawn. I'm listening to the water as I wash and dry and stack each spoon atop the other, amused by the exactitude of their design, how such things exist in this world where unbelievable things occur and recur without design or exactitude 
is no longer, at least to me, a matter of how, but of belief. Years ago, I learned of the painters who painted over their paintings. Historians call it pentimento. I call it being alive. Listen, you will understand me. Today on Living Writers, Paul Tran, All the Flowers Kneeling. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Of love. And it was all that you've given to me.